Hi, I'm Dr. Don Welch, licensed marriage and family therapist, and welcome to the My Therapist Says podcast, where I moderate discussions between various relationship experts from medical doctors to licensed mental health professionals to enrich relationship skills and communication. This podcast seeks to bring healing and hope to what matters most in our lives, our relationships. If you would like even more content or to speak with a therapist, you can visit us at www.enrichingrelationships.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good evening and welcome to Southern California's uh, professional Christian mental health connection called My Therapist Says. We're so pleased that you're here with us this evening. It's like having a psychotherapist, a professional mental health provider in your living room where you may ask a, a question about the topic. As you may know, tonight's topic is anxiety-free living. And so we look forward to uh, your participation this evening. You may do so uh, through several ways. Number one is we, may, we hope that you would be able to sit back and relax and enjoy the conversation, the discussion about your questions, as well as a 15-minute introduction by our guest uh, panel member, Dr. Dan Jenkins. The other way is to actually write down your question on the three-by-five card that was handed to you as you came into the auditorium this evening. We do have those who are uh, listening in and watching via their own laptop or computer or their own television set through live streaming. And so we invite those people, if they would, to uh, text your questions directly to me as the moderator. And that is done by calling in 619-865-4447. 619-865-4447. So a couple ways you could do that as well tonight. I have a phone here that will be reading those questions. Hopefully we'll get to many, if not most, of the questions tonight as we work uh, together. Tonight's topic is anxious free living. In just a moment, we'll have a word of prayer as we, we begin, but I would like to uh, introduce our illustrious panel that's with us this evening. Um, I'm so pleased with our panel members. We have people that are nationally known, internationally known, and even locally well-known within our own San Diego County community. And uh, we have two very skilled people with us tonight. Dr. Dan Jenkins, a licensed clinical psychologist, is directly to my left. Dan is an outstanding communicator. You'll find that tonight. He owns and directs his own professional psychotherapy company called Lighthouse in San Diego. His main office is in Mission Valley. So if you are looking for a, a therapist who is biblically integrated with psychological issues, uh, this would be a wonderful person to consult. He's also a full professor in psychology at Point Loma Nazarene University. I've had the privilege over the years to listen to some of his students who talk so fondly about not only his psychological and biblical acuity, which he has a bachelor's in both of those departments, but also uh, his uh, sincerity and sensitivity toward their needs. So we're really privileged to have Dr. Jenkins with us. He's been with us on other occasions, and I'm so glad that he will be presenting a 15-minute or so uh, introduction to tonight's topic. And you'll find that the topic tonight is probably one of the most diagnosed topics in mental health. So it's a very premier topic, one in which all of us uh, should be actually interested in uh, because of how it impacts us in so many different ways. So I, I welcome uh, Dr. Jenkins with us this evening. And then to his left, 
is Ms. Yolanda Gorick, who's not a new person to us either, my therapist says. Um, I'm so privileged to have Yolanda with us. In fact, she's participated in over seven and a half years of our My Therapist Says. This is number 90th production. And so if you have interest in listening to any of the previous audio tapes, you can go to enrichingrelationships.org and click on Minister Resources. That's enrichingrelationships.org, which connects to Skyline Churches. Uh, uh, website as well. And so you can listen to all 89 or this 90th one uh, by on your own leisure or your own time um, at any time that you would like to. There are people who've done this across actually the world. We've had people from different nations listening in to the topics, very apropos topics. So with Yolanda Gorick, she has been a presenter um, through the Church in the Way, which is a very acclaimed church in the LA basin. She's also asked frequently to speak at the Rock Church, which is a very large and successful church here in the San Diego area. Um, she also has, if you'll notice, she has Telling Yourself the Truth. This is coming up uh, in, in the near future. If you can see that on the screen, uh, you'll be able to see something that you may want to participate in. And you've, you've heard Yolanda present if you've been part of My Therapist Says over the years. So we're so glad to have Yolanda with us this thing. We're going to have a great evening. I'm so glad that you're here. So if you would be ready either to text in your question at 619 again, 865-4447, or if you would raise that three by five card with your question in the air and one of our hosts will come by and retrieve that. And you can do that just now if you'd like. So again, welcome to My Therapist Says. We're going to have a word of prayer and then we will move into uh, the introduction of the topic, uh, Anxious Free Living. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for biblical truth that is well integrated with psychological truth. If we leave psychological truth without biblical truth, we would not necessarily see through your lens some of the truths. We would miss some of the truths that you so want us to see and to understand. So tonight as we perhaps sit back and, and listen or raise questions, participate, we pray, Father, that as you have promised, where two or three are gathered together in your midst for your purposes, that lives will be changed. And we anticipate change tonight toward more health. So we thank you for your presence that makes all the difference in each of our lives. And we'll be careful to give you praise for what you accomplish this evening in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you join me in welcoming Dr. Dan Jenkins? It is a real pleasure to be here tonight. I would like to say that uh, I was anxious to be here, but I think I'm going to reframe that and say that I am excited to be here with you to talk about anxiety. Anxiety is a pretty complex thing. You stop and think about it, there are lots of reasons why people get anxious. Uh, some of it could be due to environmental factors, some of it could be due to the way you're raised, genetics, it could be a whole host of things. There are lots and lots of theories as to why we get anxious. Um, but to kind of narrow it down a little bit, I think what we're going to do is first define it a little bit better by distinguishing it from fear. So let's take a look at uh, this slide here. Uh, fear says, oh my goodness, there in the room is a tiger, okay? There is an imminent threat. 
something is there that is going to harm you. Or if you were like me on the 8 freeway last night, all of a sudden everything came to a sudden stop and I saw the car in front of me getting closer. No matter how fast I was getting my foot on that brake, the imminent threat was right there. Fortunately, I didn't run into the person in front of me. Distinguishing that from anxiety is that a person with anxiety is thinking about a future threat, a possible threat, something that could be happening in the future. We often refer to that as what-if thinking. And one of the things we do in psychology is we try to help people distinguish between fear, which is kind of adaptive at times. You need to be afraid in order to uh, successfully move your foot fast enough to the brake pedal to stop before that other car uh, gets slammed into. Or um, to know the difference between anxiety and fear. So anxiety um, is something that we look at from a biopsychosocial approach, okay? And we're going to add a component to that, spiritual, all right? So the biological, obviously, has to do with things like your physical reasons for anxiety, what causes you to be afraid or fearful or anxious that can be triggered by your body. Psychological, your thoughts, your mind, social, your family, uh, the culture in which you're raised, the society from which you're from, or spiritual. Certainly, your spiritual life and your connection with the Lord can have a, a mediating effect on, on your anxiety levels. I like to think of it as kind of like a three-legged stool, okay? If you don't address each one of these components, it's not going to stand. And if you don't have the seat on the stool right there in the center, which would be uh, analogous to the spiritual component, it loses its meaning. It's not a stool without that seat. So that's how we're going to approach this tonight. We're going to take a look at each one of these things just a little bit, enough to hopefully trigger some questions and get you thinking about it. So the first thing we're going to look at are the biological reasons. And um, how many of you, show of hands, how many of you had a cup of coffee or tea with a little caffeine in it today? Anybody admit to that? Oh, look at that. At least over half, I would say, of you raised your hands. That is the source, as you know, of a lot of anxiety. In the article that I wrote uh, for Refreshed Magazine, I uh, share about a friend of mine who I used to play racquetball with. And um, he was in good shape, but one day he drank 10 cups of coffee, and he was laying there that night, and he was trying to fall asleep, and he was listening to his heartbeat in his pillow, and he wasn't sleeping, and he was noticing that his heart was beating kind of irregularly, and then it started to speed up a little bit, and he was starting to get worried about his heart. And then he sat up because he was noticing that there was some tingling sensations in his fingers, and his wife noticed and said, honey, is everything okay? And then he said, you know, I'm kind of worried about my heart. And then she said, oh, are you having a heart attack? And he said, that's what I'm worried about. And so then she calls 911. There had been an accident on the 8 freeway. And so all the emergency vehicles that were up already came out and parked on his front yard. And everyone in the neighborhood came out. 
And it was uh, quite the ordeal as they took him off to the hospital thinking that he was having a heart attack. Turned out caffeine overdose, just a little bit too much caffeine. So the things that we drink, the things that we eat will certainly affect our physiology as well as our anxiety levels. Um, there are two paths actually in our brain that get triggered when we see something that is frightening. In this example here, we have a spider. And you'll notice that all the sensory information goes through the switchboard of the brain called the thalamus. And when it is something that has been, you might say, identified as one of the things that we are um, supposed to be afraid of, it takes the low road immediately to the amygdala, which is where the fight or flight response actually originates. And then it gets sent down to the hypothalamus and all of a sudden, all these stress hormones get dumped into the bloodstream. You could call them caffeine on steroids, okay? They just get things really rocking. They get your heart going, they get the blood flowing, and you start sweating, you start breathing faster. Basically, you are preparing for battle. And that happens without any conscious thought, this low road. It happens almost immediately. There's another path that leads up into your cerebral cortex where you can identify what's really going on. And you might say, oh, that spider doesn't have that characteristic, uh, what's that called? That, yeah, hourglass, thank you, right there on its chest. And so this is not going to be a uh, black widow. Maybe this is a brown recluse, which is even worse. But then um, hopefully you, you identify it as something else and then you are able to not feel so quite afraid. The interesting thing is, in that low path, it's not very logical. Have you ever known people to be afraid of things and to develop a conditioned response to things that make absolutely no sense? Like the other day I was teaching in Point Loma in abnormal psychology and I asked, does anybody have a phobia in here? And this one girl said, yeah, I have a phobia of drains. Another one said, I have a phobia of cotton. I have a phobia of whales. Okay, so there's all kinds of things that people can be afraid of that make absolutely no sense. And that's because there's two paths that cause us to be afraid. One is logical and one is not. And then there's the fight or flight response that uh, happens inside of our body. All these symptoms start to develop that uh, you have the wobbly knees, the breathing fast, the sweatiness that can happen when you run around the track a couple times. But you see something frightening or you are just thinking about something that's frightening and sure enough, that fight or flight response kicks in and there's no logical explanation for it. And so there comes along with that typically a sense of dread, a sense of, I don't know why this is happening to me. And what happens when that happens? You get more afraid, right? I mean, if you were running around the track and you were breathing hard and you were sweating and your heart was beating fast, you would say, that's expected. I understand that. But when it seems to be coming out of the blue for no apparent reason, we start to worry about that. 
and we start to focus on our bodies, and then that becomes a bigger problem. So that's the biological piece that I'm just throwing out there of the bio, biopsychosocial model. And so we're going to move on now to the, uh, the psychological component. Um, the first thing I'd like to point out is that there is a somatic sensitivity and feedback loop that typically happens with people who suffer from anxiety. They start to focus on their physiology. They start to focus on the fact that there's something not right here. My heart is beating too fast. Or I feel this sweat on the back of my neck. Or, or whatever it might be, they start to focus on their physiology, which makes them more anxious, which then makes them focus even more on what is wrong here. I need to figure this out, which makes them more anxious. And it cycles and cycles, just like my friend who was listening to his heartbeat on his pillow. Pretty soon, he's convinced he's having a heart attack, and there's absolutely nothing wrong. It becomes a, a self-fulfilling kind of prophecy, almost. So that is the somatic sensitivity. Then there's something called primary and secondary appraisal that I want to tell you about. So with primary appraisal, there is a uh, threat. You notice, for example, a picture of this dog. Imagine for a second, you're out late at night, you're walking around in the dark, and in the bushes, you hear something growling. And you look carefully to see what that thing is, and you see the outline of this big Rottweiler, 150 pounds. That is your first primary appraisal, okay? You recognize that this is a major threat. The secondary appraisal comes when you say, can I cope with this? Can I deal with this? And when it walks out, you see this little teeny thing that's an ankle biter that you could drop kick 100 yards, and you realize there's nothing to be afraid of. The secondary appraisal suddenly changes. You, you can't always do a whole lot about that primary assessment. You recognize that there is a threat, there is a problem. But whether you think you can cope with it, whether you think you have the resources to be able to manage that problem, that is up here. It's been said that it's not so much what happens to you that matters, but how you take it. And that's what we're talking about here with the secondary appraisal. And then the third thing I'd like to mention that falls under the psychology of it all is the belief system that you have. So there is what we call the ABC model of emotions, and it really does apply in dealing with anxiety and stress. A stands for the activating event. C is the emotional consequence. And you're very much aware of those things. What you're not aware of is the software that's running in your head that is the belief system that causes you to feel the way you do the anxiety or the fear or whatever it might be, okay? So let's do a little experiment. Let's say you're driving along late at night and you look in your rearview mirror and what do you see but flashing lights? There is a police car right behind you and he's wanting to pull you over. The first thing you probably think is, I'm getting a ticket. And so you pull over. Primary appraisal is that you are 
in trouble, that you are getting a ticket. And as you're waiting for the policeman to come around to talk to you, your mind is thinking about, okay, what does this mean? I'm going to have to pay a big fine for a moving violation. I'm probably going to have to go to a traffic school, and I'm probably going to have an increase in my insurance rates. And all these things start going through your head about future events. And does that calm you down? Not in the least. It makes you feel even more anxious, right? Okay. So that belief system that you have about what it means to get a ticket is what causes the emotional response. If you were from Mars and they don't have police cars there and you were somehow here and you saw that that car was behind you flashing its lights, you probably would think, oh, look, uh, they didn't take the Christmas lights off their vehicle. That's very, very nice. I like that a lot. That, that's very pretty. You wouldn't really recognize that this is a threat to you. And so your belief system plays a huge role in how much anxiety you're going to feel and how you appraise the threat. So those are things that are psychological and that definitely create a fear of the fear sometimes. Moving along really quickly here, because there isn't much time, let's go to the social domain of the biopsychosocial uh, perspective. Um, your family of origin. More and more research is showing that your bonding in your, those early years, and whether you feel secure in that attachment or insecure in that attachment, is going to impact everything that follows. A lot of us feel anxious, not so much about things that are out there, as much as things that are internal to us or in important relationships that we have. And those relationship attachments that we have now are seriously impacted by the relationships we had when we were younger. And so that clearly is a big factor here as well that needs to be examined and assessed. Secondly, under the social domain, culture. The culture in which you live plays a big part. Did you know that in the Eastern countries like China, Korea, Japan, they don't focus as much on individual accomplishments as much as the collective whole of groups actually accomplishing things. And as a result, they seem to have less social anxiety. You are part of something bigger. And that's just a general trend, okay, that we have noticed. Another thing is a lot of the focus gets put on your accomplishments rather than you as a person. How many times have you, um, of course, if you have kids, I've got four kids, and I know that I'm very guilty of this. They come home with a grade that's, let's say, an A, and I say to them, you are such a smart young lady. You are so bright. You are so smart. That's fine to a degree. But here's what typically is done in Eastern countries that we need to do more of. You worked so hard for that good grade. You must have put in a lot of effort. Your hard work really got you that grade. Good job. Do you see the difference? There's a huge difference. If I say to my child only that they are very intelligent, that they are very bright, 
What are they going to think when they get that D or that C or even that B? Well, maybe I'm not as bright as I have been told. It's something internal to them that they may not feel like they have control over. If you compliment their hard work, then they're more likely to say, you know, I have power to control this grade. Okay? Not saying that it, we want to hurt their self-esteem at all. I'm saying that there needs to be a balance there. And by not having that balance, we set people up in our culture to feel like there's something terribly wrong with them if they don't, if they're all, not all above average. Okay? And that relates to the next thing. I mentioned narcissism here. Narcissism. We tend to, uh, we are living in the me generation, the age when, according to research, the narcissistic personality inventory has been around about 30 years, and since we've been using that, we've noticed that general narcissism rates have gone up about 30%. That's huge. That's faster than the obesity epidemic. And so this means that, especially our young people, are feeling more entitled, feeling more positive, maybe in trying to boost their self-esteem, we are setting them up for some bigger problems. It's like any medication. 90% of it might be good. The self-esteem movement that came along 30 years ago, 90% good, but there are some side effects that may not be so good. And as a result, we have, not, not with every kid, but there are groups of kids, or just generally when we average it out, we clearly have a bigger problem along this, this line, that there's more of a narcissistic approach than we used to have. And so, as a result, they need to have people praising them. The external locus of control for their self-value comes from other people telling them how great they are. And there's a problem with that. Their self-value is actually usually very fragile. And that's the paradox of narcissism. There's a kind of a pendulum swing that takes place. I am so great. I am so deserving of this. I deserve this A, even when they didn't deserve the A. But that comes about because they've been told that they deserve it, not because they earned it. And then moving forward, oh, I got to tell you, I was down at Balboa Park the other day, and there's a new thing out there called the selfie stick. Have you seen the selfie stick? You know, you walk around and you, you can take a picture of yourself, just about anything in the background. And I couldn't believe how many of those I saw at Balboa Park. Everybody was with a selfie, not everybody, but it was a, it was a interesting phenomenon going on. And I wouldn't be surprised if it does have something to do with uh, this increase in narcissism going on. Well, let's move on to the spiritual component and we'll have to make this rather rapid. I love this little cartoon. Please God, please God, don't let the ceiling fall down on my head tonight. When actually, maybe he should be saying, thank you God, 
thank you, God, that I have a ceiling above my head tonight, that I have a pillow that I can rest my head on. When we think about what we have been blessed with and how we have been taken care of in the past, when we think about the monuments that God has given to us to help us remember of how he's blessed us, when we hold on to those things, it diminishes our anxiety tremendously. The solution for anxiety when it comes to spiritual things has a lot to do with how much gratitude we have. It's difficult to feel like this late at night and worrying about all the possible things that could go wrong if you are also feeling grateful for all the good things that have happened. We can't stop fearful things from happening. That's just part of life, right? Um, however, we can do something about that secondary appraisal as to whether or not we have the resources to cope with it. With God for us, who can be against us? When we have the belief that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes, when we know that he stands behind us, he walks before us, he stands next to us, when we know that and we hold on to that, there should be some secondary appraisal that takes place there that we can handle this. And we also have our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ that we can lean on as well. So as followers of Christ, we need to know that gratitude is the key. And right now, in the field of psychology, there's a lot of research being done on positive psychology and the field of gratitude. And the research does verify that anxiety is diminished tremendously by maintaining that kind of positive attitude. Thank you very much. Outstanding, giving us great word pictures to follow this. On page 25, actually, of the Refreshed Magazine that you have in front of you, you will see a further definition about Dr. Jenkins' uh, appraisal of, of how to live uh, anxiety-free. So very helpful. And there's a question down here, a card, if we could, the host can bring that up to the front. Let's dive into our questions for this evening. I have several that have been sent to me by text message. And the first one is anxiety always associated with fear? This is one of the first questions. If we could talk about that, you already have. Um, as both of you could, if you would, respond to that, um, that question related to, is anxiety always associated with fear? You were defining between fear and anxiety, helping us to see the difference. I would say no, not always. That sometimes uh, anxiety can be free-floating. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that is... You feel the anxious feelings, but you don't know where they're coming from. Mm. Whereas with fear, there's, there's an object that you're afraid of. There's something out there or internal that you are very much afraid of. But with anxiety, there can be a, a fear of something that you're uh, thinking of that could happen. It's usually in the future. It's apprehensive about you know, something bad going to happen. Mm. But sometimes it could be just a feeling that doesn't make any sense. 
-hmm. and it's just free floating, uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people report panic attacks and they haven't ever, they weren't really thinking of anything, maybe dead asleep Mm -hmm. and they wake up in a panic. Mm -hmm. And so it's not due to any specific thing. Mm-hmm. And you were talking, actually, in your, your magazine article, uh, Dan, you, you talked about that fear has used the word imminent, I believe. It's, it's either perceived or real or perceived imminent danger. You were talking about the two different dogs. <laughs> you know, the one was the perceived, this big dog's going to take my arm off. And of course, I didn't know you had boot dogs. But anyway, boot that little dog. You could boot the little dog. But that's that concept of, of fear versus the anxiety is that anticipated. There's an anticipatory, perhaps, piece to it, if I'm hearing. But let's get back to this, this question. I know I moved just, away, just a little bit away from that. Yolanda, you look like you were ready. Is anxiety always associated uh, with fear? Yolanda, I don't know if you... I think that Dan answered it perfectly. Uh, without knowing what exactly the heart of this person's question was related to, I think that was very succinct. I, and I hope it was helpful, because it was pretty clear. When I think of anxiety, I think of dread. But I love the fact that you included that it doesn't always have a source. It can be more aggravating when you can't name the source, but it does happen. Okay. Another question this one relates to, thank you for really articulating uh, an answer to that question. My teenaged daughter wanted me to find out if there are any quick tips to help her deal with anxious, repetitive thoughts, which you referred to, Dr. Jenkins, where the, at, least, at least I'm thinking of your, your article, because I read that this afternoon, and, and also what you said, that there can be repetitive thoughts. She's graduating in May and will be going to college in the fall, but she says the thoughts she gets are not related to that. So let me go back over the question. My teenage daughter wanted me to find out if there are any quick tips to help her deal with anxious, repetitive thoughts. She's graduating in May and will be going to college in the fall, but she says the thoughts she gets are not related to that. How would you respond to that? This is a, actually a fairly common question when you're dealing with either fear, anxiety, or even panic disorder um, or panic attacks. A lot of times the things that we feel afraid about don't seem to be directly related to the big events that are coming in the near future that really we ought to be afraid of. Mm. It's as if we don't allow ourselves sometimes to see what we truly are afraid of. Mm. You know, she may have some anxiety about going away to college, which would be normal. But the human mind is capable of deceiving itself so well. And so it might be some other little thing, some other little anxious thought that she gets uh, kind of um, perseverating on just over and over and over again. And in a way, it provides a smokescreen so she doesn't have to really go to the real painful thought that what if I go away to college and I'm, I, I don't like it or I don't, I'm away from home where I've been living my entire life. You know, th- those are reasons why uh, she should be afraid. They're much larger. But these other thoughts kind of distract her from that. So you might call it the lesser of two evils. Okay. So we, are those... Are those behaviors to try to um, keep us from seeing it? And, and 
uh, what can we do? For example, this question that was just texted in right now ties in. The anxiety I experience is more low level but chronic. What are some tips you would suggest? So what would be tips for the person who asked the first question that this is chronic and, and the person, maybe their, as you said, their mind is perhaps not tricking them but maybe not dealing with the real issue? What would be some tips that we could help people that may be experiencing what these two questions have asked? I don't know if they're tips, but what comes to mind, I agree with Dan, that sometimes we protect ourselves from facing the truth. Mm. And we may not like to know that, but the truth is that the mind and our behaviors from the past, the family of origin that Dan talked about, mm. we've learned certain ways to deal with anxiety or avoid anxiety. And without, we don't know if this person has obsessive compulsive, if she has you know, repetitive thoughts. Is that a habit? Has she had the most of her life or has something triggered it? So I like the idea that what we as Christians need to do is tell ourselves the truth or allow someone to tell us the truth in love. There's no magical formula, but I like the theme that seems to be arising that telling ourselves the truth. What is it that we're anxious about? And if it's not something that's in the future, why do we allow that to happen? It serves a purpose. I want to take away any shame or guilt or condemnation that anyone listening might have for, ha for feeling anxious. I, I remember one person said, yes, but the Bible says we're not supposed to be anxious. And I said, well, how about don't stay anxious, write it down, talk to a friend, face it and deal with it. Because the, the rest of the scripture says, be anxious for nothing, but let your requests be made known to God. So to God and maybe someone else so that you get it out. So we're trying to be authentic. In other words, embracing or facing the anxious, fearful peace rather than avoiding some of the tips, I know you didn't perhaps like that word, but some ways that we can deal with this is, number one, to try to be aware of what it is that we are feeling anxious about. How do we get there? How would a person, that makes good sense, but how do I get there if, if I'm not sure really what I'm anxious about? And maybe I'm avoiding it by ruminating and cycling with a particular um, thought as this question asked. What would be some of those? You know, I think the, the important thing to do is to really connect with somebody who is someone you really trust, mm. someone that you feel like you can really open up to, and in so doing, really explore where those feelings are coming from. Because mm. there's a chance that uh, in talking and in disclosing that information that it's going to become more and more evident that uh, these other things that really seem like little small triggers are really not the problem. It's this mm. bigger thing over here and identifying the truth is so important then. And the other piece that I wanted to say is when you're by yourself, when you're at home in bed clutching the blanket and you're letting your mind just kind of go places it shouldn't and into those dark places, it's okay to try to get out of that attempt to figure it out hmm. by ruminating on it. Because when you just do the same thing over and over and over again, it's not going to come to a solution. That will not be the answer. In fact, 
it just makes things worse. So doing what we call thought stopping, mm. where you actually say to yourself, <laughs> stop, there are no tigers here. There are no reasons to, to ruminate on this. I'm not going to find a solution and try to come up with some other ways of distracting yourself. When I'm having a difficult time falling asleep because I'm thinking about things, I'll actually get out of bed and go get a book and read until I'm starting to feel drowsy. And then I go back to bed. I don't read in bed because that's where sleep is supposed to happen. But go back to bed and try again. And try not to let the mind go down those dark paths that make you feel anxious. So that's, that's one of the ways to kind of stop those thoughts that habitually start to take over. So, uh, thought stopping is one. That's a very good point about that a bed is for sleeping, and when you're reading it, you are becoming relaxed, but having a designated place, boundaries for, for, for particular parts of our life, and then also uh, through Scripture that is saying to be more direct. You know, be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God, and then he will guard your heart instead of maybe you ruminating. Is that a possible transl transliteration of that possibly? And so these are different ways. And a friend, I think you mentioned this would be a friend would be another way uh, to do this that you could be authentic with. Um, that's why that idea of gratitude is so helpful when we have someone with whom we can share the good parts of our life. And a question came up related to this about this anxiety, is there a correlation between anxious parenting and angry parenting? That shifts us just a little bit, but that question came in as a text here. Is there a cor cor correlation between anxious parenting and angry parenting? Well, in both cases, the physiology is on the excited side, right? Mm -hmm. You're both, if you're anxious and you're afraid, um, one of the ways people deal with that is to actually become controlling and to try to, let's say you're a parent who's afraid their teenager is gonna go out and get shot or get intoxicated or get, you know, smoke marijuana or something, you know? You're, you've got this fear and that fear, that anxious what-if kind of thinking is going through your mind. What if that does happen? What if I lose him? Or what if she, you know, and you can just take that list forever. And so as you feel that they are moving away from you and becoming their own person, you're losing that kind of control, I could see anger as being an attempt hmm. to maintain that kind of parental authority and parental control to make your fear not come true. Is that why in parenting we ask ourselves how I respond to this child, what will be the best way to respond rather than react? What this question seems to be asking, and I believe you were addressing, Dr. Jenkins, is that, that it's a component of reactivity mm -hmm. versus a response to the situation. Yeah. I was thinking, whoever asked that question, that it might, I, I just feel like there's not enough credit or discredit, however you want to say, to the way we were raised and the patterns that we mimic or sometimes they're the default and we're not really always aware. That's why I said I want to remove any blame or shame or condemnation. 
you happen to find yourself mimicking or repeating the behaviors that you were raised in. So I would ask that person, do you remember feeling this way, treated this way by your parent hmm. when you were a child? Sometimes we step back into that without knowing, and it's almost a knee-jerk reaction, and we're not always aware of that. And the other thing I thought of is that it would be good, again, I'm going to roll into this because my group is telling yourself the truth. Mm -hmm. Identify what exactly is it that you're angry about, really, honestly. And can you really be angry about it? Is it that you're angry you're not a good enough parent? Is it angry because you feel you're left alone and you, you have to struggle to figure this out? So that makes you anxious because you don't know what to do as a parent? Being honest about what it is that you're angry about might be a source for you to lower your anxiety. If you have, like Dan was talking earlier, a friend who has no judgment, someone that you can talk to and they can hear you and reflect back and just simply not try to fix you, don't fix this person if that's your friend, okay? <laughs> just listen and then reflect back. Well, it sounds like you're anxious or you might be angry because you don't know, you don't think you really can do this, but you have a child and maybe you're angry because you're alone or maybe you're angry, maybe your husband's deployed or it wasn't what you thought. So drilling down to the point of the source of it would be helpful. And then finding out from there what triggers you to feel anxious or angry. These are not simple things, but I'm trying to kind of give a different perspective on this so that mm -hmm. you don't blame yourself or shame yourself, but you keep moving. You keep moving and you don't stay stuck because that's really where the enemy wants you, kind of handcuffed and behind the door and just saying, mm -hmm. I'll just regurgitate this thing until the second coming, you know? And yes. I don't yes. care who's knocking at my door. I'm just going to just keep worrying about this. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about the second coming. Will I be left behind? I mean, because it, it just builds <laughs> and you're just like going on. And the enemy says, that's fine. They're taken care of. I can go on to somebody else because exactly. they're never going to move. So wake up. That's so how it. do we how do we do this? Let's let's even take it. Uh, let's drill down, as you said. Let's drill down. What would be a way if I don't know how to drill down? I, in fact, I may not know how to do reflective work. You talked about being reflective, asking myself questions. What if I've never asked myself these kinds of questions? How do I start doing that? How would you instruct someone? It's you're so you're so eloquent the way you said that. You know, drilling down. And but I think there's some people that might be saying, I, I don't know how to do that. Help us to know how to do that. You, you did, but can we build on that for just a moment? It was so well said. Let's build on that for a moment. What would be things we, we could invite people to do or consider, to be reflective? Our society is not really a reflective society necessarily. It doesn't build on that. Um, and so that's not a common experience, at least with the people whom I serve. I oftentimes that, that is, is, there's not enough space for it or something. I'm not quite sure, but what would you say? Okay, well, I'm going to cheat here and say that this whole... There's no uh, cheating, by okay. the way. Okay, so know, but <laughs> this whole seminar, this whole workshop today is like an advertisement for my group called Telling Yourself the Truth. When is that again? That is going to start the first Monday in February, and it goes for four weeks. And there's a morning group and an evening group, and it's co-ed. Uh, so that's... It's, I, I show you the how to drill down, how to examine... One thing that it takes to be reflective is that you have 
to be, you have to admit that you hurt. Hmm. That's something I learned a long time ago. Um, you have to admit that you hurt. If you're not going to admit that you hurt, you're just going to keep going on. So part of the reflecting is being able to notice and observe that you're not doing well. Not as well as this person over here, not as well as you'd like, not as well as your mother or your father think you should be, but you're not happy. And admitting that mm. is the first part, I think, of being reflective and getting in touch with, this isn't working. And that takes a little degree of mm. honesty, but if you start with where you're bothered, where you hurt, that's where you're going to meet the Lord. Mm -hmm. That's where I did. And so that's my two cents. Mm -hmm. and just to add to that, um, I think in our busy society, taking time to be reflective is something that is sorely lacking. Um, the Bible talks a lot about meditating on the word, mm -hmm. taking time out. And I would suggest to you that uh, when a person is very, very relaxed in a peaceful, peaceful place and able to really be with the Lord and feel that, that peace that passes understanding, that is the, just the opposite of being anxious and stressed out. And you can't be anxious and relaxed at the same time. They're mm -hmm. physiological opposites. And the more you take time out to just meditate on the word and to relax and let yourself slow down, it's like vitamins. It's going to maybe not one time make a huge difference. And we'll feel good, but the more you do it, the more you will lower your physiological levels and your anxiety levels will drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that Joshua 1.8, you know, to meditate on the Word of God day and night mm -hmm. so that you may prove what the will of God is. So it's, it's God even helping us to relax, yes. to enjoy His presence. And, and actually, you're talking about experiencing the transparency of God. He became transparent through Christ. And transparency oftentimes leads to a relaxed place. Uh, there was a note that was texted to me, said, great point about admitting that a person hurts really hit a chord with us. So that was just texted to me. With this, this whole concept, there's a question that led to, related to, excuse me, um, being in a fear-based position. The question is, haven't dated in 3.4 years. A friend mentioned she wanted me to meet her friend. A real nice guy. Anxiety set in. Started... Um, dreaming about it uh, night, uh, night after night. How do you remove that fear base? So the question is related to a fear base here. I prayed about it, yet physically felt nervous. So the person I believe is asking that um, there's, there's a nice guy that she's wanting to meet, but anxiety, however, anxiety set in, and she then started dreaming about it, um, and at night, excuse me, made it even worse. So how would you address this type of question? One thing that comes to my mind is that if we have expectations of anything and we base it on assumptions or hearsay, we're generally going to set ourselves up for a disappointment. Mm -hmm. And that could be one cause of anxiety, whether you're dating or you're married or whatever it is. I'm taking it out of context. Our expectations, when we pray for someone 
for them to be healed and our expectations are what if they don't. All of these thoughts that we have that place pressure on ourselves, expectations on us and expectations on other people can be a source of society. I mean, anxiety mm. that is unnecessary, completely unnecessary and unrealistic. So for this person, we put a lot of weight on success, making it um, in terms of maybe this person is ashamed that she hasn't dated or she's not where other people want her to be. So maybe some of that anxiety is the pressure that she feels from other people. It's called fear of man, but it's also called popular opinion. And so drilling down to the truth, why she feels anxious, might help release that anxiety to say, look, this is my first time I'm choosing maybe some self-talk that's a little bit more balanced and more positive, it's just saying, this is my first time, first of many. I'm just stepping out right now. That's a very different self-talk than, but if he's not the one, mm. then I'm doomed. Mm. I should become a nun. Yeah. But I want sex in marriage. So how am I going to do? We just mm -hmm. go off. And so... I just think we make it so easy for the enemy. It's like, mm. yeah, they're on. They got it. I need to move on. We do so much to ourselves. Um, the positive self-talk can always include scripture. Mm -hmm. Always. Because otherwise, you're just talking back to yourself and hoping that you make sense and that it's okay. Yes. But whenever you can apply your self-talk and put in the scripture and make it personal, you have set up an incredible 360 boundary. Mm -hmm. on the areas that Dan was talking about, spiritual, psychological, and physical. Mm -hmm. Try it sometime. Come to my class. Okay. It was up on the screen once again. I, we may even put it up a third time because of how well you're doing here with the advertising. <laughs> Is that we're talking about family of origin here, aren't we? So perhaps there could be a possibility, you mentioned it, Dan, that there could be a possibility that this anxiety is not coming from the current. It may be more free-floating, I think, or the fear or anxiety or combination. That is it possible that it could be coming from family of origin? You talked about uh, there may not have been perhaps adequate bonding early on in life, which creates potentially fear or distrust. Um, the very first uh, real challenge that we have, even as in infancy, is being able to develop trust in our caretakers. Hmm. Uh, Eric Erickson, a famous psychologist, pointed out that if you don't develop that trust in that very first relationship, hmm. then later on in life you are going to have difficulty trusting. And if you can't trust people, if you're always afraid that they're going to abandon you, that they're going to take off and leave you for somebody else, or that you're not going to be able to maintain a secure relationship with them, uh, you're going to have a lot of anxiety. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely agree that there's a lot of early relationship issues that come into play with this. And for this young lady, I think um, I'd like to just add that uh, the expectations that were mentioned mm. are so big. After three and a half years, mm. um, you know, she's probably thinking, is this the one? And that's, that's the anxiety-producing thoughts that take you from one to a hundred uh, that are totally unrealistic. It's not the truth that 
you should be thinking that this, this is the guy that I might end up marrying. This is simply the guy you're going to meet over coffee. Mm. And mm. that might be it, right? And so maintaining that level of expectancy is going to help reduce the anxiety. Tremendous. So maybe back to your thought stopping, that I need to kind of stop that thought that's going way out, that if this is the one or all these variances of uh, feelings. Yes. Something else that Dan talked about and I want to underscore is the meaning that we make of what happens to us Hmm. has a lot to do with whether we develop fear or anxiety. It's the meaning that we attach to, let's say it's not for, let's say the coffee is where it ends. The meaning that this person makes about, I didn't get asked out, he didn't ask for any more, it was totally boring. It's the meaning that we make that makes it, it makes it just go into the next uh, cycle of anxiety or fear or condemnation. So in learning how to drill down, what is the meaning that you make when things go wrong? That's one way to stop your anxiety, is to be aware of the meaning that you attach. And it's hard to know whether that's accurate or not, but just to be able to stop yourself and go, now, was it that bad? Does it mean that you know I, I'm going to never be married, that I'll never have children? Does it really mean that? Um, so that, I think, for Christians especially, we have such high expectations of ourselves almost as if we're not walking Jesus. It's like there's no hope for us. And when I hear them, my heart just breaks because Mm. our expectations are enormous. And then we place those same expectations on our brothers and sisters. And I don't know about you, but I've failed so many times. And when you talk about expectations, when you think of working with uh, groups of couples, and there are many couples here that attend a class here at Skyline Church, that we work on this issue of uh, expectation, that it's one of the premier issues for young couples. When you do premarital and then they come back and you try to help them to see that you have certain expectations you may not be aware that you have, but you will express those in different ways in your marriage. And that understanding those expectations can really be helpful because sometimes they can be hidden from us, can't they? And then when you're in the marriage and then there's daily activities and daily responsibilities, those expectations can arise to the surface and then create challenges if the couple is not able or willing to reflect on what's going on, just as you're suggesting. What is taking place here? So it's, it's actually being, is it being patient with yourself? Being able to say, what really is going on here? Maybe I should just, I should just sit down for a minute. Let me just think about this for uh, just a moment and reflect on it. There's a, there's a question that just arose. I, I was thinking of your article again on page 25, and you used several scriptures, Dan, in, in talking about divine assurance. And you did use Romans 8.28, and you referred to it earlier in your presentation. Uh, wonderful scriptures that can help us to be patient with ourselves. I think that's what I'm hearing coming through. We're, we're harsh, maybe, potentially, or hard on ourselves when we may need to be more kind and gentle and even patient with who we are. Do you know that that's a level of empathy? And empathy would be the opposite of a personality disordered person. Someone with self-empathy, they will tend to share that empathy with others. Low empathy for self, am I correct? I may have an inability or a lower ability to be gracious 
to other people? This question ties into a very pragmatic, practical situation. The person says, I live with extremely high levels of anxiety due to a spouse's lack of taking responsibility for anything with our family, finances, spiritual, emotional. I feel like I have to provide everything to our children. How do I help myself lower anxiety in this situation? Wow, that's, that is a very challenging question. This person's living with deeply or high levels of anxiety and experiences the spouse not taking responsibility. And the word was used for anything. That's a lot of anxiety. And I'm very sorry to hear that a person's experiencing that we, we cannot live long with that kind of anxiety without having back to what you were saying, some sort of somatic um, issue that may transpire. Right. Quite often that's what does happen is that some kind of physical breakdown does eventually happen. Uh, a person living in that kind of situation will be under so much stress and so much worry and so much anxiety that it doesn't take long before they start to really fall apart. And, and just hearing that really saddens my heart mm. to know that there's somebody in that situation. And I would just uh, really advise them to uh, seek some comfort from other people that would be able to listen to her plight and to be able to get some counsel maybe to figure out specifically steps that can be taken to um, build her up and strengthen her because she's taken on the responsibility of raising those kids, it sounds like. And uh, that's a huge responsibility and she's stepping up to the plate and she's doing it but uh, her resources are limited, and so finding help is, sometimes it requires setting aside some of those preconceived ideas about what it means to get help, you know? And it's kind of humbling to say, I could use some assistance here, and to really take that step, you know? But that's what I would suggest that she do, is, is reach out and, and get some additional assistance mm -hmm. in this situation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. When I hear that uh, cry, I guess I'm not going to be um, uh, soft on this. I'm going to say it's time to get help now, serious help. It's not time. If you feel that this is uh, going on for too long and you're finally saying something, then the thought that goes with that might be, do I deserve this? If I deserve this, then I have to endure this. And pretty soon that becomes, then you're stuck there. Do you feel that you deserve this or do you want more? Number one. And number two, many parents or couples that I see have ongoing conflict and stress and they kind of dance around the issue. Not very many times though because we drill down um, in the sessions. But I think that we're unaware of the effect on the children. So for this person who was called in and she or texted in and says, this is, I'm now taking over for the children, you may not be aware of how the children absorb your anxiety. Hmm. Hmm. How they are almost, it's almost like a lightning bolt. It's hard for them to have that protection when you are the main parent. Hmm. And so for that reason, I urge this person and anyone else listening to get serious about healing and getting help and growing out of that. But you need to believe that you don't deserve that. 
And you need to believe that it's not God punishing you mm. for anything. That you deserve to live a, a fulfilling life. So if not for you, then for your children who can't protect themselves. They need to know what you're modeling when you get help is that this may not be perfect, it may not be right, mom might be crying, she might be angry, she might be hungry and you know, irritable, but she's getting help and they need to see the value of getting help early in life. So bless you, wherever you are. So a great gift to children when we take care of ourselves, when we model doing healthy self-care in this case, you're describing how children early on, they absorb emotion and then they move to more cognitive development, correct? And so, depending upon the age of the children, they are likely absorbing a significant amount, if not a great amount of that, that anxiety. And so, that would be a motivator for most of us as parents, I think. You're describing how perhaps being motivated to take care of self so that that will impact uh, the, the children. Is that true? Yes. There, there's someone that had asked a question about gratitude. We've been talking quite a bit about the fear, anxiety, the different components, the somatic, the psychological, the spiritual, the, the emotional, of course. And Dr. Jenkins helped us to look into a little bit of positive psychology. It's, it, as you were saying, it's heavily researched, and there's, there's ample support, as you also indicated that we actually have longevity increased with a more positive attitude uh, because there's a lot of chemical reactions, responses, the way we view our life. We're hopeful. You've heard in the Bible when the people are out without hope, they perish. When someone's very suicidal, they've lost hope. So you can see these variants of this, and I think that's why Romans 8.28 is such a powerful scripture that you included on page 25 of, of your, your, your paper, I mean, your um, magazine article, and uh, talked about it tonight. This question is about gratitude. How can we have gratitude in the midst of serious disappointments in life? For example, the death of a parent or a child who has serious psychological issues. Wow. What a powerful question. How can we have gratitude in the midst of serious disappointments in life, the death of a parent or a child who has serious psychological issues? And may I add a little addendum to that question, that for whatever reason, even in the Christian world, we, we can, I don't want to say we fake it to make it, but we, we, um, we may not be able to adequately embrace things, and someone might say, we just need to pray about it or have you done something wrong, or raising questions that can be a bit shame-based, or even shame-based. And so sometimes even in the Christian world, we may not be allowed at times to be as authentic about this kind of question, because I think this is a very authentic question. How can we have gratitude in the midst of the serious disappointment, disappointments in life? How would you respond to that? Uh, this is a really good question. And I love the authenticity and the heart behind it. The word says, count it all joy when we fall into various trials. I have so many trials I have fallen into. I'm, that's why I don't wear heels anymore. I just wear flat shoes. <laughs> when I confronted the Lord about this in my time, 
of uh, many uh, trials and mistakes and failures, I felt the Lord saying, it's not joy that you have the failures. It's not joy that someone dies, but it's joy knowing that I'm with you and you're not alone. And that I have a purpose no matter what happens to you. I could get behind that, but I couldn't understand it until I got close to, to God. And there again is having a real authentic walk with God. So I don't believe God wants us to be happy when bad things happen. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of Christians kind of double over and kind of jackknife and they think, well, um, they don't know what to say to someone or to comfort them. And Mm -hmm. so they come up, we come up with cliches that actually can wound a person and make them feel like shutting down because they didn't get a sympathetic ear or even someone who didn't judge them. So I think this is a very, very solid, um, heartfelt question. So my suggestion would be to say, uh, honestly, where is the joy? If I don't have it, then um, give me something else. Give me peace. Because joy is on a continuum. It's not like that happy one where I got a sale and I've got, you know, I've got uh, something that I really wanted. It's a continuum. And sometimes I think that the joy of the Lord is uh, underestimated in terms of the strength that, it, that we can get from it. And so I think that uh, the gratitude may be, I just know God. I don't have the answer. I don't like what's happened. I may not even accept it. But at least I'm glad I know God. And here the word says, he has a plan for me. I'll take that. Mm. On a scale of one to 10, that's a one. Mm. Maybe a one and a half. I'll take it. And every day you grow from that. Mm. That is so good. That really is the case that no matter what the trial, we can focus on the fact that uh, God is with us. And that does give us strength. That's the secondary appraisal that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. That's the recognition that we can cope with things. We don't have to like what happened, as you said, but we can can focus on the fact that God is with us and walks beside us through this time of grieving or loss or whatever the case may be. Can I add one thing? Yes. Because this is not my gifting, but this is something that I feel... um, very special feeling about uh, trauma, loss, especially disenfranchised loss, which is loss that has so much shame that you can't talk to anybody about. Mm. Either society, the church, your best friend, your mother, or even yourself you can't even talk about. Naomi, in the book of Ruth, I think stands as a classic example of God's heart towards you. If you are bitter and broken and angry and want to change your name, You can still be blessed if you keep moving in his direction. That's his promise. Mm. So it doesn't matter how angry you are, if you're honest about it, you're not going to be, you're not going to end up cursing yourself or having more problems. Mm. The point is to be able to be honest about it because Mm. that book and that model that she gave, I believe is God's signature saying, I understand. Tell me more. Mm. It's okay. 
You know, I think with the life of Jesus, we're, we're planning to wind down here tonight. The life of Jesus illustrates, as he went to the cross, his ability to embrace the pain, to be honest, to be authentic, as you were suggesting with this, and that God really wants to allow us to be authentic with him and with ourselves. That's the beauty of being a Christian. We actually should be, perhaps that sounds a little bit shame, I'm not saying should be or the shoulds, but the odds, but by virtue of being a Christian, we are allowed to be honest with God and that he's very interested in what we're having to say or what we're experiencing. We are out of time and we have several more questions. I wanted to spend a little more time on the gratitude that was so helpful. Um, in the other areas, we'll have to perhaps uh, conduct another anxiety-free living. Um, you, you say it in your, your magazine article, how to live anxiety-free um, in life. Our next My Therapist Says, if you'll notice up on the screen, is interacting with the combative relative. Dr. Diana Shorstrom is, to me, a, a very strong expert in this area, um, a PhD, uh, a colleague of mine, and I think you're going to find it very delightful. She has actually uh, served um, our campus before in, in helping us with a weekend seminar. And she knows a lot about somatic medicine. We talked about that tonight. What happens to the body? And she will be talking quite a bit about that as well. So we'll be picking up on some of the anxiety we discussed tonight. Hopefully, we might be able to respond to some of the questions we were not able to get to. So I would invite you uh, to consider that. That is, again, listed on February 3rd. It, we're, we've shifted to Tuesday, and thank you for what a great crowd. We've shifted from Wednesday to Tuesday, and thank you for coming out this evening. Would you, before we close in a word of prayer, word of prayer would you uh, join me in, in thanking our uh, astute panel members this evening? Outstanding, outstanding. This was free of charge. Um, actually, you should be charged about um, maybe $450, but we won't be charging you tonight for the expertise that you were able to gain from these two individuals. Now, if that wasn't anxiety-producing, I Yes, that wasn't anxiety-producing, wasn't it? Here, we did so well all evening, and then I end with that. <laughs> Don't end with that. So... Well, let's have a word of prayer, shall we, and that we'll end with that as a really helpful piece because we're thanking God for His presence here this evening. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your presence. Uh, you never create anxiety for us. You do create a sense of uh, contrite heart, a heart that is open to You. Um, and we may become anxious because of that, but You're not trying to make us anxious and afraid. You, you often said, fear not, I am coming to you. Anxious, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer, as we already mentioned your word, and that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us and died on the cross for us. So we, we thank you for your great grace that gives us a peaceful living. And so we thank you when we have high peace, we have low control, typically. That's the life of Jesus. If we have high control, we have low peace. We have little peace or less peace. And so we, we seek your peace, and may we be reflective in your word and listen to your voice as you speak to us. And so we thank you. We bless you this evening. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for coming, and our two panel members will be just out in the atrium. They would like to greet you, and if you, perhaps you would like to meet with them. Thank you again for